So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, very excited to be joined by Arun Kumar, who's a lecturer in international management at the University of York. Welcome to the show, Arun. Thank you. So today, we're going to talk about a paper that you co-authored with Sally Brooks, who's a colleague of yours at York. And you try to answer the question, how did philanthropic foundations come to wield such influence over how we think about and do development? despite being so far removed from the poor and their poverty in the global South. And what I thought was exciting about your work was that you, you lay out a, a brief sketch of the history of philanthropy. And I thought that what we could do with the show would be to walk through that history a little bit. So maybe we could start at the beginning, a period you call scientific development, a period of scientific development from 1940, say to the 1970s. What, what does that period look like? Okay. So, um, so there are a couple of sort of things. So philanthropy obviously has engaged in a large number of spheres of our public lives, uh, from libraries to arts and culture, education, higher education, and so on and so forth. So Sally and I uh, focus in particular on what is known as global development. Yeah? And uh, global development essentially uh, became a thing around uh, the end of the Second World War. So that was a period of great turmoil. Uh, there was uh, obviously a large number of previously colonized countries were seeking their independence. So in 1947, India and Pakistan came into being. Uh, thereafter, a large number of African countries started seeking their independence and so on. So it was in a world of turmoil. And uh, one of the ideas has been uh, in development studies that global development or international development as it was popularly called at that time, was this thing uh, by which uh, the sort of colonial powers were able to reorganize the world in a way that was familiar to them. So it was no longer about uh, colonizers and their colonies, but it was about the first world and say the third world. And the third world was supposed to be these countries in Latin America, in Africa, in South and Southeast Asia, which were not quite developed, which were largely agrarian economies. So it was around this time that the US philanthropic foundations in particular started becoming more and more influential, increasingly on a global scale. Uh, which is not to say that they were not active before that. So the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, uh, had programs in parts of Asia in the 1920s, which were essentially run as public health programs. But there was this major impetus that came as a result of international development with the U.S. Foundation sort of at the front and center of leading this global or international development as it was called at that time. So in terms of scientific development, which, sort of, which we discussed starting from the 1940s and going up to uh, the 1970s. So there was this idea that the US essentially had the resources and these were not just capital or technology, but even knowledge to solve different kinds of problems of development. And going back to sort of Truman's speech uh, about the Point Four program where he talked about how the US now had the resources that they were able to give to the peace loving people of the world. It now had all these material intellectual resources that it offered. So during this period of scientific development from 1940s and going up to the 1970s, the idea was that US had these resources and it could now build 
new kinds of institutions the world over in public health in agriculture for example in medicine management education public administration urban planning institutions where problems that had supposedly already been solved in the us could now be transplanted into other parts of the world and the whole idea so it was all built around the idea of universalization so the idea was what works in the us will therefore work everywhere so a lot of people particularly who are sort of proponents of philanthropy see this as the institution building phase because the us foundations particularly the ford and to some extent the rockefeller foundation were giving large sums of money to establish these institutions so they were literally building institutions but we call it institution replication because that is what it really was the idea was there were these models of science and development which the us had and we have several examples of that so you have the tennessee valley authority for example and the idea was there's a particular model of uh, community participation of agricultural modernization of community building activities which could now be uh, transported transplanted to different parts of the world likewise with the rockefellers involvement with the hookworm disease or from the 1950s 19 60s onwards especially the green revolution for example in parts of asia south asia and southeast asia so you had uh, institutions like uh, iri for example or the cjir institutions which were then subsequently set up in different parts of latin america africa asia and the idea was they will now replicate the kind of success stories that were already in place in the us my understanding is a big part of this the push for this kind of funding was was it was anti-communist yes so that is absolutely true so it was obviously the cold war being the sort of wider context here yeah? and uh, the idea at that time was that they needed to promote american economy american project american capitalism its riches and its abundance as part of something that uh, the set of peasants and artisans in other parts of the world must also desire so one of the things that we sort of talk about is how in this institution replication one of the ideas was that you juxtapose the set of imagery of modernity and tradition side by side yeah so you help the people see uh, what is it that the us has to offer so uh, professor inderjeet parmar at city university for example wrote this very interesting book called the foundations of american century where he talks about how these you the big three sort of us foundations were essentially peddling a particular vision Uh, which was both about promoting americanism countering the anti-american example yeah as well as fighting obviously communism in the third world so in my research on the history of management education for example one of the things i found was that uh, uh, this there was this idea that china had already been within ford in the late 1940s early 1950s the idea was that they had already lost china to communism and india then became uh, sort of the frontier of the war between uh, communism and capitalism and therefore ford opened its first overseas office ever in new delhi in 1951 and the idea was that this will be a development and the foundation sort of pushing a particular version of development will be one way they will be able to win the hearts and minds of 
the peasantry. So the discontent will not allow to, will not overflow. People will remain in their places, but it's also a way for them to uh, expand capitalism, uh, ensure communism doesn't take any kind of root, and so on and so forth. To what extent are these foundations working with the U.S. government? And then to what extent are they pursuing ends which might which might not be very attractive to the U.S. government? So they were sort of very close with the U.S. government. Uh, so there, were, there is obviously uh, quite a bit of work around philanthropic officers or philanthropoids. Yeah? And the idea was that there was always this revolving door between U.S. administration and uh, the officers moving into uh, the different foundations. They were also becoming deans of business schools, for example. So they were building those kinds, bringing in those kinds of managerial technologies on how to solve, manage particular kinds of problems. And in all this, obviously, there was this nexus between uh, the foundation as well as the US foreign policy interest. So the idea was that development was this frontier where if the foundations continue to plow their money, they will be able to make sure that the US foreign policy interests were always protected and they were being promoted, uh, especially in sort of important places like India and Brazil, which were like strategic frontiers in different kinds of ways. This period from the 40s to the 70s also coincides with a very active moment for the CIA and um, the United States involved in, in several successful coups and many more unsuccessful coups in what we call the third world. So it, it, in some ways, it seems inconsistent that we're pushing the Americanization of these societies. And at the same time, we're undermining democracy in some of these same places. So the ultimate objective in either case was always the same. The idea was to convince people about the supremacy of uh, U.S. capital to ensure that the governments in these countries were somehow amenable to uh, American interests and so on. But I think uh, what we often do when we think about development is to sort of take it at face value, like we often do it with the philanthropic foundations as well. We often see them as very benign uh, sort of in institutions which do not have any malified intentions of any sort whatsoever. But one of the things that we sort of talk about throughout the paper is that how the foundations in sort of pushing particular versions of democracy or development were at the same time also setting aside particular other visions of democracy and development. Yeah. So in agriculture, for example, the solution to poverty, the solution to hunger, the solution to agrarian distress was never about redistribution of land. Yeah. So in India, for example, obviously, uh, there used to be the feudal zamidari system, for example. So instead of sort of pushing or investing resources so that that kind of traditional socioeconomic structure could be overthrown and replaced by something that was more modern and perhaps more egalitarian, the U.S. foundations propagated the vision of scientific agriculture, for example. So you have miracle seeds, you have... Uh, large-scale dams, which were causing further dispossession and displacement, for example, and so on and so forth. So we focus not necessarily on the best interests of the poor or what might be more effective solutions, but we focus on particular kinds of vision, particular kinds of solutions, which always ensure that they are essentially in line with what the U.S. foreign policy interests are, uh, what the American ideas of development or democracy or scientific development might be. 
That makes a lot of sense. I, I've never actually thought about this before, but maybe it's a silly question. To what extent does the does the Soviet Union also have their version of a development policy, and do they have their own version of these philanthropic organizations? Obviously, because there wasn't a lot of private wealth in that sense. There aren't right. these large-scale philanthropic organizations uh, from the Soviet Union. But obviously, there they were quite active participants in different kinds of uh, say, uh, the transfer of technology, for example. So in industry, in steel industry, for example, they were quite actively involved in setting up steel plants, in uh, the transfer of both technical as well as managerial know-how, for example. So they did participate quite actively in certain realms. They were, obviously there weren't foundations, so it wasn't private wealth in that sense, but it was public money and there were uh, sort of quite organized about it. So there is much less scholarly interest uh, around uh, the sort of Soviet involvement in development and uh, their sort of participation, but there's far greater interest in uh, how it, uh, American foundations were uh, sort of hand in glove with the US foreign policy interests and how they were sort of propagating it. And part of it might have to do with the availability of archives, for example, which make it quite easy to access and uh, for people to write about it. Then you write, by the 1970s, the era of large scale investment in technological assistance to the developing world or the developing country governments, it was coming to an end. And so what replaced that? So there were a number of things which were going on in the background. So obviously the foundation themselves, their own resources were sort of not as expansive as they once seemed. At the same time, there was the sort of growing realization that they did not have pockets deep enough to actually solve or address these problems and the scale of them was so much higher or so much larger and more extensive than they had ever estimated. So from the 1970s onwards, there was this idea that they should start instead of sort of sending expertise, technology transfer and capital, they should maybe look for local resources. So this is both local knowledge as well as try and involve local money, local capital, local governments more extensively than they had done in the past. So the US foundations moved towards what we call from the 1970s onwards to what we call the partnership mode. So essentially, instead of founding new kinds of institutions, which were similar or satellites to what the US uh, institutions were like and trying to do, they started giving smaller program grants to NGOs. So these were sort of local NGOs, quite large, uh, but national level NGOs that were getting money. And Ford Foundation, again, was quite at the forefront of sort of uh, leading this partnership era. But once again, they sort of played particular kinds of influential roles. So like I was saying, uh, they propagate. Uh, one of the things that we focus on quite a bit is how uh, the foundations are able to propagate particular kinds of vision. And in doing so, they always set aside other kinds of visions, yeah? So in the partnership era, for example, there was, their focus was not on state accountability. So holding the governments of uh, these new countries accountable towards their own citizens. But the idea was, can we think about citizens as consumers? And then NGOs became service providers. Or they talked about women's empowerment, but women's empowerment was essentially uh, sort of reduced and framed quite narrowly in terms of how women were more reliable borrowers than men were. 
and therefore they were seen essentially as a citizen. So you have NGOs in Bangladesh like the BRAC, the CWFP, and so on and so forth. So they were essentially giving money to these NGOs. Yeah, if we could compare the two, the two ages, the two stages, which was in your mind more successful or either successful? I think both were quite successful, but in a different kind of way. So sometimes I get asked this question about how the earlier stage was somehow more benign because they were founding these new institutions. And obviously, say, for example, in an Indian institution, you would then have Indian faculty who would grow. And over a period of time, they were able to take over and they were able to sort of replace the American vision with their own sort of localized vision, which was more amenable to their own reality, their own uh, national requirements and so on and so forth. But I wouldn't sort of say that that was uh, somehow more benign simply because uh, it was an institution which subsequently passed over into the hands of the locals. In either case, they were sort of what they were trying to do, uh, and more clearly in the first stage, obviously, because it was about the Cold War context, was essentially protect particular kinds of interests of capital and democracy at all times. And they started doing it in more blatant ways as time went on. So they were sort of uh, in the scientific development era, for example, uh, the idea was that the technologies were not necessarily uh, protected by patents, for example. So they were by and large publicly available. But as time went on, especially in the in the partnership era and uh, from the especially from the 1990s onwards, they were more and more looking at technology services, for example, which were patent protected. And therefore they were sort of uh, more blatantly protecting the interests of private capital. Yeah, I've been talking to several economists who work in, in the field of development recently, and it seems like they keep coming back to the question of technology transfer and that there needs to be more transfer of technologies from the developed world to the developing world. You're saying basically for the first 30 years after the war, after the war there was this kind of technology transfer, but it became more difficult because of, because of things like TRIPS? Yes. So it was increasingly being protected in different kinds of ways. So the private sector interests were being protected. So uh, you have the example of what were known as PPPs or PDPs, yeah, which became very powerful and extremely influential in different kinds of areas, right from municipal water supply to uh, say vaccine development, which is a hot topic right now, yeah? And the idea was to be, or supposedly spaces where there was space for public participation. We all know these were highly unequal. Um, they were almost always relying on public sector to fund uh, the research that went in or infrastructure that needed to be developed while the risks were being diversified. So in PDPs, for example, which are quite actively used for the development of new medical drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics, the idea is that instead of the pharmaceutical company investing its own capital, and therefore this becoming a high-risk venture, it is public money which is going to finance this. And therefore the risk somehow gets transferred from the private sector to the public sector. However, the benefits uh, continue to be protected in different kinds of ways. And uh, the developing countries increase, increasingly either have to rely on charity, so they would be offered say, a certain number of uh, vaccines or a certain number of doses of the drug at 
no cost, no, no, no at cost basis, uh, no profit, for example. But that again is something that they do not have by right. So it is something that would be at the largest of a particular pharmaceutical company, for example, which will in turn uh, acquire more uh, reputational capital. Yeah. So these firms will say that we did it and this is good CSR and therefore we are being quite responsible. So the Gates Foundation, for example, has been quite active in sort of steering these uh, PDPs in particular kinds of directions, which almost always ensure that the interests of the private pharmaceutical companies are always protected while the money for the research, the funding for it is essentially not coming from uh, private capital, it is coming from the public sector. Since the 2000s, we've been in this stage, the final stage, which, which you call philanthro-capitalism. Can you talk about what distinguishes this phase from the, the period before it? So uh, philanthro-capitalism essentially came about from uh, Bishop and Green's book by the same name. And in the earlier edition of it, uh, they sort of called it how the rich can save the world. And then uh, when there was a lot of backlash uh, in the, against the financial crisis and so on and so forth, they quickly changed the title to how giving can save the world. <laughs> so deflecting attention away from the role of elites, for example. So philanthrocapitalism essentially is built or designed around this idea that the states don't have enough money. And these are both developing countries, but also developed countries, which uh, after the financial crisis, a large number of them developed austerity austerity, there was less money available for international development. And uh, therefore, the idea was that the states no longer had the money. So you had to rely on private capital to get involved. And over a period of time, it moved into something that is known as blended finance, so both public and private money sort of coming together. And this subsequently moved into this idea that we now understand as impact investing, which is basically this idea that if you do philanthropy and if you do it cleverly and strategically, and you make use of all these managerial technologies that come from the world of business, philanthropy itself can be profit making. So it will earn particular kinds of both uh, financial wealth, but also say reputational wealth, symbolic wealth, political capital, for example, and this, that, the other. So it, philanthropy, instead of being this act of charity, which is this supposed to be, becomes another area of profit seeking, of profit making for private firms. And again, there are sort of several examples, particularly around financialization, uh, where we've seen NGOs and uh, uh, sort of uh, microfinance institutions very quickly become or uh, uphold private sort of interests, ensuring that money was being uh, repaid, even if it came at uh, the cost of life of the poor people, for example. So even though we have large number of examples about how this financialization, which is increasingly relying on marketization of new uh, sort of areas of the social life of the poor, which then become tradable uh, commodities, their services are increasingly becoming tradable, their assets are increasingly becoming tradable. So we have this whole financialization, which is uh, sort of coming into being, all of which are now giving more or better returns than uh, what private capital would have been able to get, say, in regular sort of investment in uh, manufacturing or 
service economy. So there's a higher, less risk averse rate of return, which is available to them. So you have things like uh, impact bonds, catastrophe bonds, and this, that, the other, different kinds of financial instruments, which are allowing the, uh, where the philanthropic foundation pushes them quite actively, very, very uh, vigorously in developing countries. And it is increasingly re resulting in uh, private profits over public goods. Clearly the investors are doing well, What's the track record for the people in the developing world? How, how effective has this been in pulling pulling people out of poverty, this, this final stage? So it hasn't been particularly effective. I think uh, where there have been gains made, say, for example, in India's uh, Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, for example, the central government, it has been public money which has ensured that poor people uh, in large numbers are able to get out of poverty. Uh, wherever you have those kinds of examples, you will always see it is the government which is leading and more often than not, it is the government of the developing country which is leading that fight and helping people get out of poverty despite all these sort of limitations and despite all the sort of rhetoric and the criticism that the private sector and the philanthropic foundations as well as the think tanks like to throw at them about how they are bureaucratic, very lazy, slow moving, not innovative enough, how the private sector is supposed to be this fountainhead of knowledge, of innovation, of risk taking, of entrepreneurial activity. We find where people are getting out of poverty, it is essentially the government money which is helping them do so. Philanthropy is by and large protecting the interests of private capital.